Well, good morning. We've got those here with me and uh, those joining us online as well and as we gather in worship. If you are new to Bel Air, I want to welcome you not only to this new year, but we're in a new series right now. Uh, as a church, we want to be a group of people that follow Jesus. It's all about Him. They're not following me. They're not following somebody on staff. We're not following some set of ideals. We're following Jesus. So we want to do that every day and everywhere with everyone. So it's about following Jesus, not just on Sundays. It's every day. It's not just on this campus, it's everywhere. And it's not just with people who are just like us. It's with people who are absolutely unlike us as well. And so as we've begun this new year, we're taking a look at Jesus' teachings. In fact, his parables reveal to us practically what it means for us to follow Jesus, to, to live it out, for it to not just be a motto or a mission statement or something that we put on the bottom of our emails, but literally how we as individuals can follow Jesus, again, every day and everywhere with everyone. And so what I'm hoping is that you wouldn't see this way of life as something that just I do or the pastors do or the staff does, but rather everybody who calls Bel Air our church home. And if you're new, if you're checking this place out, I'm calling you to a standard to not just come and watch not just a spectate, to be, but rather to be part of what God is doing here as we collectively, individually, follow Jesus every day and everywhere with everyone. And so as we go to these teachings of Jesus, these parables, as we've looked at each week, in many ways we're reminded that the 2,000 years we've had them since Jesus first shared them, in many ways they've become sanitized. They've lost their cultural impact and shock. And in fact, as we get to this parable today, perhaps the most famous parable, the top parable, I think the most familiar parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, we'll actually see that Jesus presents to us a hero in the story. Now, because we've gotten 2,000 years removed from that cultural moment, we often write ourselves into the story. Because we always want to be the hero, don't we? And if we aren't the hero, we actually write in somebody who's just like us to be the hero. That looks like us, talks like us, listens to the same music, that votes like us, that lives in the same neighborhood. We want people just like us to be the heroes of the story. So when the hero of the story is somebody who's not only is completely unlike you, but somebody whom you would consider an enemy, well, those are the stories we don't like. And so when Jesus told this story, telling the hero of the story being a Samaritan, what we've lost over 2,000 years is that Jesus was telling them to see the hero of the story as the very enemy they wanted nothing to do with. And so to help us kind of understand how we often write ourselves into the story and how hard we have to find other people as the heroes in the story, the Ballard Drama Department has helped us out with taking a look at what would that look like today in 2016 here in Los Angeles. Take a listen. Welcome back to Live on LA, a podcast dedicated to the ideal notion that the more we know and invest in each other, the more ignorant barriers come crashing down. Today we're talking about an incident that happened just this last Sunday in downtown Los Angeles. And to give us a full picture, I've invited an eyewitness who came forward after the altercation. Natalie, thank you for joining us. Can you tell our listeners what happened? Be happy to. I was down on Figueroa last week, and I see this rich guy walking down, um, down the street. 
had a really nice coat, was talking on his phone like everybody else, when these two guys jumped him. And I mean like beat him up bad, like pow! They took his coat and his phone and I'm sure his wallet too. He was bleeding all over and he had just sort of collapsed like and crying and moaning and stuff. It was pretty awesome. Uh, I, well, then I guess my first question is fairly obvious. Uh, did you try and help the injured man in any way? Oh, not at first, but I took a video of it and posted it online. It's already gotten like 10,000 hits. Uh, well, what happened next? So, this group of teenage girls come walking by. I figured they were going to help him, but they didn't. <laughs> They're on their phones texting and whatever, and they walk right over the guy. Mm. Don't give him a second look, except the girl in the back trips over him. So she calls him rude, kicks him, and they all laugh and keep going. Right after, they take a selfie with the guy lying on the ground. Mm. And that's when someone came to the aid of the victim. You'd think so, but no. Uh, next, this religious guy walks by. Uh, I'm sorry, how did you know that he was religious? Oh, a couple of ways. First, he's wearing a suit. Who wears a suit on a Sunday except for a preacher? <laughs> then, he's got this big old Bible under his arm, but what really gave it away was that when he saw the guy bleeding on the sidewalk, he crossed the street like a bat at a, well, <laughs> you know where. <laughs> and then he crossed himself and he took off. Mm. And how was the victim doing at this time? Ooh, not well at all. It sure looked like he lost a lot of blood. The guys who jumped him may have stabbed him. He was passed out by now. And still you didn't go over and help him? I figured if a preacher didn't, why should I? And that's when help finally arrived. Well, I wasn't sure at first, but yeah, this lady walked up. Well. I think she was at least a lady. She was wearing one of those uh, burkas or whatever you call them. She was covered in black from head to toe. I backed up because I figured she could have been a terrorist or something. One of those Al-Qaeda's, you know? So I got my phone out and started filming it just in case she had a bomb strapped on. Oh, I have it here. Mm-hmm. All right. I uh, see the woman here dressed in black, and she's reaching into her clothing. Yeah, sorry if the picture's a little jumpy. I was backing up pretty fast. Yeah, uh, I, it appears that she's uh, pulling out some bandages. Yeah, she totally surprised me. She wiped off his wounds and bandaged him up. Uh, okay, uh, now this is really, really jumpy. You uh, must be backing up very quickly. Well, of course. She went back into her robe and pulled out a phone this time. That's how they detonate bombs, you know. I was not taking any chances. <laughs> but instead, the woman in black evidently called for help. Not an ambulance, but an Uber. <laughs> That's right, not five minutes later, this older Ford Explorer pulls up. At first I thought maybe they were kidnapping the guy, but it became pretty clear that the woman in black was just trying to get the guy to a hospital. She pulled out a credit card and paid the driver before he left. Thank you. And so we have a case of what seemed to be the most unlikely person coming to the aid of a fellow Angelino. And here on Live in LA, we think that's a perfect example of another ignorant barrier crashing down. Signing off till next time. If you have those Bibles in front of you in the pews, let's hear how Jesus told that story. We've sanitized it. We've made ourselves the hero of the story. 
But as we take a look here in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, if you have the, the Red Pew Bible, if you're here with us, uh, if you're new, if you're in the front row, there's a little cubby right behind your leg tucked in. There is a red book. That's our Bible. We go through the New Revised Standard Version. It's on page 844 if you have a Pew Bible. But if you're online or if you perhaps uh, are accessing Scripture through a mobile device, we're going to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And let's hear this as Jesus shares with us the most famous parable, perhaps, in the history of humankind. Listen to this. Verse 25. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, this is Jesus speaking, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I'll repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three, Jesus asks, do you think was a neighbor of the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The man said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. This, my friends, concludes the reading of God's Word. All right, so keep those Bibles out because we're going to walk through this together. And right from the get-go, I want to let you know that this person isn't curious, isn't asking, isn't wondering for their own benefit, but rather it says right from the get-go, Luke, who's recording this moment, says that this person, verse 25, then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus, trying to trap Jesus, trying to back him into a corner. And I want you to know that this lawyer isn't a, a corporate lawyer, this isn't a divorce lawyer, this isn't like a contract lawyer, this is a religious lawyer. Somebody who spent their life studying God's Word, who perhaps most likely has it memorized, who knows all the ins and the outs, who can dissect and argue and debate Scripture with the best of them. And so this religious lawyer, this like seminary professor, this Bible study leader, shows up to Jesus and he, you would assume, has heard that Jesus is doing things that kind of getting him in trouble. On one hand, he is a master of the law. He knows the ins and the outs of God's Word. But at the same time, he's preaching forgiveness and he's talking about mercy. He's talking about healing people and, and forgiving them of their sins. And so this person who knows Scripture front and back has an opportunity to, to trap him, to test him. And so he goes in not for his own benefit, but he asks the simple question. And he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
And Jesus so masterfully knows that he's being backed in a corner, knows that he's being tested. And so, rather than just answer, I mean, on one hand, he could have just said, have faith in me, trust in me, acknowledge me as Lord and Savior. It says that elsewhere in Scripture. He could have very easily said that, couldn't he have? I mean, what a great opportunity for somebody to lead somebody else to Christ. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus could have easily said, just, just have faith, just trust. But Jesus knew that there was something deeper under the surface. Knew the heart of this religious teacher. Knew that this person was trying to test him. And so Jesus turns the question back to the religious lawyer and says, you know the law. Take a look at this. Verse 26, what is written in the law? What do you read there? You see, people were interpreting, trying to understand, trying to parse out what Scripture was. And so Jesus turns the question and says, so what do you think? And he answers. This is the religion. This is not Jesus answering. This is the religious lawyer answering the question. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And so he's basically saying you've got to love God with everything. You've got to love your neighbors with everything. And he was right. Jesus says right here in verse 26, you have given the right answer. Because the reality is if you look at the Ten Commandments, for example, you can actually see though there's Ten Commandments, you can put them in two different categories. The first few are all about how you love God with everything. And the rest of them are all about how you can love your neighbors as yourself. In fact, if you were to look at all of the Hebrew Scriptures, all of the Old Testament, depending on how you add it up, there's somewhere between 700 to 800 different commands just in the Old Testament. And you could actually boil all of those commands down into two different categories. Ways in which you can love God with everything and ways in which you can love your neighbor as yourself. And he sums it up so well. He says it's, it's all about love. And it was the right answer and it's a popular answer today as well. You see, many of us, and I hear this all the time, and I, I say this often, it, it has a lot to do with love. If we can just love God, if we can just love others. In fact, there's a lot of people who are like, man, I don't need the church. I don't need teaching. I can love God on my own, and I can love my neighbors as myself. And there's some people who don't even believe in this, and they'll have a standard. Man, if you just leave the world a better place then you received it. Oh, if you're just patient, if you're just a good person. And so often we answer the question to ourselves, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And every single one of us has an answer to that. That's why Jesus was so masterful, because he asks the person. In many ways, he's asking you, he's asking me. Drew, Bel Air, visitors, those online, what do you think? it takes to experience eternal life. And so we, like the religious lawyer, give an answer. We all have an answer to it. That answer could be whatever we come up with or it could be informed by what we understand Scripture tells us. And the amazing thing is, is that after he gives an answer, Jesus responds, I think, completely unlike how he thought he was an answer. You see, he was trying to test him, and he says these things. He thought Jesus was going to argue with him, and Jesus says, no, you're absolutely right. Then go and do likewise. 
And so this religious teacher then responds. And in verse 29, this is the key that unlocks the whole parable. It gets to the motivation under the surface, the heart of this man. Verse 29, but wanting to justify himself. Let's pause right there. Now the word justify is a legal term. If you don't pay your mortgage, if you don't pay your rent, if you don't pay your cell phone bill, uh, if you go to your favorite restaurant and somehow you write fake checks or use somebody else's credit card, after a while, you're going to be in a relational state, in a sense, that is broken. And debts will have to be paid, costs will have to be incurred, so that that relationship can be made right. And so when you are out of compliance, a broken contract, a broken relationship, Something needs to happen in order for it to be justified, in order for it to be made right, in order for it thing, everything to be made whole. And so the fascinating thing here that Luke tells us is that this man wants to justify himself. What's going on there? You see, he's just given an answer to Jesus. You've got to love God with everything. You've got to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you're right. Now go do it. In that moment, the religious lawyer knew that they absolutely fell short of that standard. In that moment, though it was their own answer, knew in that exact moment that they never have been able to know or, nor ever would live up to that standard. So there's a need to justify himself. If you come in here and let's say you don't believe any of this and you say, you know, what it means to be a good person is this, that you're just patient with people. Let's say that's your standard. I'll, I'll make that up. Let's say that's your standard. I, you, you're just patient with people. I guarantee you that by the end of the week, you're going to get impatient with someone. If your standard is, you know, we, we've just got to just let go of things, we're, we're, you know, I'm not going to hold a grudge. I guarantee you by the end of the month, not explicitly, but in your heart, you're going to hold a grudge. Whatever standard you bring into this room or bring into this moment of what you think it takes to inherit and experience eternal life, if you actually began to go down that road, you'll never live up to it. Because think about this, to love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your soul, just think about that for a moment. A great litmus test to see if you are doing this is this. So at the end of the day, you're done with your work, you're done with your chores, you're done with everything. You've got kids, you put them to bed, whatever it is, at the very end, you finally get a moment to yourself. You finally get, and you finally have a free moment. Where does your mind go to? If it doesn't go straight to God, if your mind isn't just absolutely reveling in the fact that God is glorious and great and created all things, if it doesn't go straight to that when you get a bonus, perhaps, from work, if your mind doesn't go straight to, God, how can I invest this in the things that you're doing? If your mind doesn't go when you're on vacation, all these moments straight to who God is, if it doesn't go straight to that, then you're not loving your Lord, your God, with all your strength, your mind, your soul, and your spirit. The truth is that none of you can live God and love God with everything. I can say that about you because I can say that about me. I don't love my God with everything. When I get those free moments, my mind doesn't go straight to God. When I get opportunities, my mind doesn't go straight towards how do I reinvest that into the things of God. I absolutely fall short of that. And the religious lawyer knew it about himself. The second half of that, love God with everything. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
That religious lawyer knew absolutely he can never live up to that standard. So he had to justify himself. He somehow had to make things right. There was an inconsistency. A great litmus test for you to see if you love your neighbor as yourself is this. So, Powerball. Big week, right? 1.5 billion. I, I didn't buy any tickets. I, I assume some of you perhaps, uh, perhaps dabbled in that this week, right? So, the moment you found out that your number, I, don't, I know for a fact no one here won. <laughs> I know for a fact, yeah. So 1.5 billion, we, whatever, you know, we bought our things, right? The moment you found out that your numbers on all your tickets, or one ticket, didn't match up, oh man. A great litmus test for you to know if you love your neighbor as yourself as this, is that when you found out that somebody else won, and you were just as excited as if you won. <laughs> and then you found out that three different groups of people split the earnings three times the party. How awesome is this? You're telling everybody, did you hear who won? Did you hear who won the Powerball? It wasn't me, but I don't care because I love my neighbors myself. You don't do that. I didn't. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> when you're trying to get the job and you're competing against other people and somebody else gets the job, are you as excited for them as you would be for you? When you're on the long list to get the part and somebody else gets it, are you as excited for them as you are for you? No, I wouldn't be. You're not. It is absolutely impossible to love your neighbor as yourself. You can't do it. It's impossible. No matter what standard you bring into the room that you think is required for other people, even for yourself, you'll never live up to it. And yet Jesus so masterfully knows that every single one of us brings this condition, our broken state, to these moments that he responds, even though he says, you've given the right answer, do this and you will live. And so wanting to justify himself, this is verse 29, he asked Jesus, okay, well, who's my neighbor? And in asking that, the religious leader, the religious lawyer, I should say, is trying to narrow down, trying to put limits on, trying to make more manageable this impossible standard that he just said that he felt like he should live up to. He knew. He, I mean, he's not even talking about God. Okay, well, let's start with neighbors. Well, who's my neighbor? Hoping that somehow he could find something that would make him feel okay in that moment. No, he couldn't live up to it. I mean, we get happy for our family. We get happy for our friends. We get happy for people who were just... We get happy for people that we feel deserve to win Powerball. But if we hear a story of somebody who we absolutely believe shouldn't have won it, they're bad people, they're wrong people, they exploit people, we say, oh, that's, an, oh, that's awful. You see, we want to be the heroes of the story, and we want people just like us to be the heroes. So when Jesus tells this story, it should shock us all like it shocked the lawyer. Verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is an actual road an actual historical area. There are writings outside of Scripture that talk of a certain place on this one road from Jerusalem to Jericho where it was famous for robberies, for muggings, for killings, and it was referred to as the Pass of Blood. The bloody pass. So much violence happened there. And Jesus tells a story about that spot. And he says this, he fell in the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. And the amazing thing is, is that as he begins to tell the story, 
You are introduced first to a priest. You're introduced to me. Not the hero of the story. Because that priest walked right on by. Then you're introduced to a Levite. That person walks right on by. The two people who should be the heroes of the story, the two people who are like us, that are us, aren't the hero in the story. And then Jesus says this, but then a Samaritan, while traveling came near him, let's just pause there. The moment, I, I guarantee, the moment Jesus said the word Samaritan, that man's blood began to boil. Because the Jewish people and the Samaritans were bitter enemies. It was first century racism. And there was actually a prayer that we've actually found and it's passed on that Jewish people would play out of their, you know, racism when it's fueled by righteousness in God's eyes is an absolute wildfire that can't stop. There was actually this prayer in the first century, Jewish people would pray, God, give me my daily bread, remind me of your new mercies every day, and may there be no Samaritans with you for all of eternity. That was an actual prayer. And so when Jesus says, but a Samaritan, and then goes on and says that the Samaritan comes near. This isn't about a Samaritan just kind of throwing change. This is about a Samaritan kind of at arm's length. But literally, this Samaritan, who's the very enemy of the person listening to this story, gets so close, there's physical contact. This person is willing to get their hands dirty. This person is willing to allow their clothes to be bloodied. And listen to the holistic, sacrificial, dangerous, all-encompassing love that this Samaritan has. He went to him. After he came near him, he saw him. He was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, took care of his physical needs, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal. He took care of his transportation needs, brought him to an inn, took care of his shelter and housing needs, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper. He paid a debt that he couldn't pay himself. And then even beyond that, he says, I'm going to come back. I've got to go away, but I'm going to come back. He didn't just like leave the person on the doorstep and run, but entered into a relationship with the innkeeper as an advocate and says, I'm going to come back. I'm going to hold you to this. Don't spend that money on something else. I'm going to come back, and if there's any more costs, know that I'm good for it. No matter how expensive it is, this person has to be cared for. I'll repay you whatever more you need to spend. So after Jesus tells the story, he looks at that religious lawyer and says, which one of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And when he responds, when the religious lawyer responds, he can't even get the word Samaritan out. He can't even bring it to his lips. So deep is his racism. So deep is his bigotry. He can't even publicly say it and says, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. And even though Jesus ends with, go and do likewise, Jesus is not saying to that religious lawyer, here's what you need to do to inherit eternal life. 
You see, the religious lawyers started with, what do I need to do? And at the end, Jesus says, now go and do likewise. It would be very tempting to read into this story that Jesus is just trying to make a point that if you can do love like that, then you're good enough. Then you can measure up. Then God loves you. Then God brings you in. But if you were with us last week, we were reminded of the fact that we are all lacking righteousness. And righteousness literally means to be approved, to be accepted. And so there's two different ways that we can go about it. We either are self-righteous, we try to get approval through our own good deeds, trying to earn up to God's love, or we simply receive it by faith through what Jesus has already done on the cross. And so Jesus clearly says and reminds us that there's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to earn God's love, to be enough. And at the same time, Jesus says that there's a standard of the law that I will not lower. Because the reality is you have to love God with everything to inherit eternal life. You have to love your neighbor as yourself to have eternal life. The problem is you can't do it and I can't do it. You see, Jesus isn't lowering the standard. He didn't say, I've come to abolish the law. No, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but rather I've come to fulfill it. He doesn't lower the standards. He keeps it up high. But he reveals to us that we can't truly love. We can't love God and we can't love others. And it actually takes you getting to the place where you can acknowledge that you can't love until you can learn how to really love. In fact, you'll never love until you realize you can never love. Do you hear what I'm saying? You'll never be able to love until you actually get to the place where you realize, I don't have it within me to truly love. I mean, I can give lip service, I can do nice things, but I can't really truly love. Because the problem is, is we don't want to go there. We don't want to acknowledge that we can't truly love. We don't want to go to that place. We want to be the hero of our own story, don't we? And so when we write ourselves into the story, we often write ourselves as the person who comes alongside and helps the person out. Jesus says, don't do that. You are not the hero. You are the person left for dead on the side of the road. You are the one who's been robbed. You are the one who's bleeding out, losing your life. And you need a neighbor. Because the reality is, you, me, will never love God with everything. We'll never love our neighbors ourselves. We might love people like us, but this is an impossible standard. And when Jesus tells the story this way, he doesn't tell it the way that we often retell it. You see, he doesn't say the religious lawyer, there was a Samaritan. Can you believe it? A Samaritan on the side of the road. So who came by to help the enemy? Was it the priest? No. Was it the Levite? No. It was this person. So you be that person. He didn't tell the story that way. He puts you in the ditch. And you need a rescuer. And the amazing thing is, is that you have a neighbor. You have a good Samaritan. And it's Jesus. You see, there's a word in here that again unlocks such amazing truth. When the Good Samaritan in the story comes and sees and comes near, it says that he takes pity on the person on the side of the road. 
That word pity is actually better translated compassion. And it's this Greek word, splachnizomai. Let me hear you say, splachnizomai. That's really good. It's only used 12 times. 12 times. Only 12 times in the New Testament. It literally means to love from your deep intestines. This was a good thing in the first century. We talk about, I love you from the depths of my heart. In the first century, it was, I love you from the depths of my intestines. And this person in this story is so moved with compassion that their gut is wrenched. Their stomach is turned. That happens when somebody like us is hurting. That doesn't happen when we think somebody who justifiably deserves it gets what they are due. You see, this person is splachnizomine, their enemy. And of all the times, of the 12 times that it's used in the New Testament, it's never used to describe the action of a human being. Jesus is the only one in the New Testament that is able to splachnizomai, to love at that level. And so we see Jesus having compassion on people time and time again. And there's three parables that actually use that word splachnizomai. This is one of them. Another one is the parable of the prodigal son. It's the father who has splachnizomai, who has compassion for his long lost son who's finally returning. And so when we see in the three instances of these parables, we should read into the story that the one who has compassion is God. The only one capable of loving at that level is God. And the fact that we have a God who has come to us in the flesh, who comes near to us, who is so moved with compassion, who not at risk of his life, at the cost of his life, sacrificed everything to make you whole, who paid your eternal debt after loving God with everything, after loving neighbors with everything as himself, he satisfied in his perfect life the law that you will never be able to fulfill. And so that's why Jesus can say, yes, go and do likewise. And that's why he says, I have come to fulfill it. You see, God doesn't lower his standards. He just says, you'll never live up to it. But let me come and live out that standard on your behalf. You see, long before you can become a good Samaritan to others, you need to realize that you need a good Samaritan in your life, and it's Jesus Christ. You will absolutely be moved to love at a completely different level if you first realize that you're the one in the ditch. The songs that we sung earlier have such a different meaning. Lord, I need you. Oh, how I need you. We don't sing those words and really mean it if we're the hero of the story. Oh, but when we know what it's like to be on the margins, when we actually listen to Scripture that says that every single one of us, whether society puts us as the majority or the minority, that all of us are broken, all of us are in need, but we have a great God out of His love who comes to us and transforms us in ways that we could never imagine on our own. What an amazing thought. There's a true story that was uh, 
passed down, you know, preachers kind of get these stories. And we share them and share them and share them. This is a true story of this woman who uh, had quite a fortune, huge wealth, and her family had all passed away, and the only one who was left was her nephew. The only one. And so she wanted to know, should she write her nephew into the will to give the inheritance? But kind of wanted to know what the character, what, what this person was like. Because on one hand, while the nephew was always around that woman, he was always warm, he was always kind, he was always patient, he was always loving. But she wanted to get under the surface. She wanted to see his true character. True story. So she dressed up, she dirtied herself, she gave the appearance that she was one experiencing homelessness and knew where he worked, knew the patterns of his day and planted herself on the side of the road waiting for him to pass by. And she asked for help to her own nephew. He didn't recognize her. What did he do? He yelled at her. Completely different reaction to how he normally gave this woman his aunt. And in that moment, she knew. She knew the answer, should I give him the inheritance? She knew in that moment, should I give him the fortune? She knew in that instant what his real character was. You see, the reality is that every single one of us, God looks at and says, I want to know what's on the inside. Yeah, you can have the good deeds, you can, you know, show up to church, you can do all these things, but what's, what's, what's deeper than What's at the heart? And if you're continually trying to self-justify, if you're trying to measure up, if you're trying to do the right thing so that God will love you, he says, no, stop trying to do that. Because ultimately, you're only going to be able to do that to the people that it's easy to do. But the gospel changes everything. The gospel is the only resource that will end racism and bigotry and self-righteousness. The gospel is the only reason that will change the, th the things that we absolutely know need to be changed. And so that starts by first acknowledging that we need, we need a good Samaritan, and it's Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time, and as we, in a moment, we'll hear the words of a song that are centuries old, originally, this words of this prayer. As we reflect on these words, reflect on these thoughts, God, I pray that through all of that, that we would see you as the hero. You might not be the hero we want, but you're the hero we need. And though in our brokenness, we are an enemy, in a sense, to God. You gave it all for us to make us friends, to make us family, to make us loved. So Jesus, may we reflect on this time and may you change how we live, how we love by seeing you as our good Samaritan. In Jesus' name, amen.